You really helped me. Okay, I'm going to start today with a story, a story that's uh, pretty personal here. Have you ever been ready to finish something? You're done. Mentally, you're done. But you could not quite finish. You weren't actually allowed to be done because you weren't in control of when it was over. Ever been in one of those, uh, probably a conversation? What if it's not a conversation? What if it's like a situation that you, have, you don't have that kind of control over? See, when I was 19 years old, I began to seriously follow Jesus. And something happened when I was 19 that really changed my life. He, he did something. Jesus did something that I can't fully explain much better than saying he renewed my life. I knew him before that. I'd known a lot of the story of Scripture. But I didn't really, like, know him. I wasn't really following him until I became 19 years old and had this encounter with him at that point. And soon after that encounter, I had this desire to go and tell people about what he had done in my life. And here's the thing. I felt compelled to go to another country to share what he had done in my life. And so less than a year later, after turning 19, I went on my first mission to northern Mexico. And I have a, a, a picture there. This is the first picture. Uh, this was my first mission. And let's say it's not really like the simplest kind of one to go on. Um, you can't really tell because the picture's pretty pixelated. This is from 2008, but there's these little white dots in the mountain range, and that's where we were hiking to in northern Mexico. The, this mountain range is part of the Copper Canyon, which is really 16 canyons, and uh, that little town there is called, uh, or village is called Huacaibo, and so we were going to hike there. This was a several-hour hike, and it included everything you needed to get there in your bag, so I sought to be very simplistic in what I would bring. Um, to get there, we had to cross a wooden basket hanging up by this metal wire over the uh, Rio Urique. Uh, Kevin, can you change the picture? Uh, actually, go back one more. I'll just give you a context. This picture is the view from when you've made it to Wakaibo and you're looking back at the mountains you had been standing on. So you're descending all the way down to the very bottom. You can't see there's a river there. Now, Kevin, you can change it. This is the river we had to cross in a basket to get to the village. I think we descended about 1,500 uh, feet, and then once we crossed this river, we would ascend another 500 feet to get to the village. Now, the church that I was part of at the time had partnered with a local pastor who had been involved in ministry to the Raramuri people there. And the aim was to provide relief and food, clothing, uh, and healing through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But when I arrived, um, the goal had expanded in that area to uh, helping build a boarding school and a school so that children could have, um, wouldn't have to leave the Copper Canyon to go get schooling. The mission was amazing, but it was also exhausting. You can see by uh, you know, the distances. That's me in the middle, of, uh, hanging over the river, wanting to capture one more picture. It was, it was an awesome, awesome time to be there. I had no regrets going. The descent, for me, I love running downhill, going downhill. That's the easy part. Some of you don't like that's really hard on your knees. For me, that's like the easy gravy part. The painful, suffering part is going uphill. And so the return trip was terrible because it's 1,500 feet uphill, on very steep inclines and lots of switchbacks. Now, once we finished that hike, after several sweaty hours, we got to the top of the canyon where we had left our vehicles, and we actually had a three-hour drive back to our motel. And I was really looking forward to that motel. 
I was looking forward to just a shower in some lukewarm water, being able to shave, to put on some clean clothes. When you hike into these places, you want to bring as little as possible. So you just say, I'll just keep wearing this thing over and over again, and I'll wash it later. Just got to make it for the short amount of time, and then, you know, I can return to comfort, cleanliness, uh, some luxury. And so mentally, once we finished this hike, I was ready for change, for comfort, to relax. Our motels really did mean the end of discomfort of mosquitoes, uh, you know, sleeping in uh, sweaty sleeping bags, carrying only what you needed on your back, all that kind of stuff. And it meant the end of spending time with the same amount of people for two weeks, okay? So there was lots to look forward to. However, they warned us. They warned us and said, look, it's been raining a lot. We'd kind of come after a, a huge downpour, and they said, we might get stuck in our vehicles. So just be prepared. You might have to get out and push. I wasn't really uh, paying attention to that. That was what future Alex may have to deal with. But present Alex was tired and wanted to nap in the car. So as soon as I got in the car, I took off my shoes, took off my socks, closed my eyes, and got ready to sleep. And I did for about five minutes. And then we were stuck. And for the next three hours, we would be stuck. And I remember being really upset, really angry, because I was done. Mentally, I was like, we've completed the hardest part. What else do we have to do? And here I was, hearing them say, get out of the car. we got to push these vehicles. And no matter how hard we tried, we could not get out. All of the soil, it was like this muddy clay. And so I realized I didn't have any control over how we'd get out. We didn't have any tools. We tried pushing. We tried putting rocks under the tires, anything, that, anything remotely like that could help us get some traction to get out. Nothing worked until someone in their wisdom said we should try asking God to help us get out. And so we did. We prayed in front of the first, I think there was a convoy of like three or four vehicles. And we prayed in front of each one. And after praying for each one, the vehicle would move. This was an incredible moment in my uh, discipleship journey with Jesus where I saw how clearly he moved when his people would call on him. I was tired. I didn't have anything left. I was mentally ready to check out, but I saw him answering this prayer, and I remember feeling my heart come alive as I saw these answers to prayers before my eyes. And what happened in that moment is I once again had this desire to go and tell people what Jesus had done for me. Jesus taught me something that day that has stuck with me ever since, which is this. The mission is not a two-week little trip somewhere. Your life is supposed to be the mission. So the mission is actually the length of your life here on earth. And his mission happens wherever you are. Telling people about Jesus, bringing his good news, teaching about him, his kingdom, bringing his healing, that's for all of us and for all of life, not just a couple weeks in another country. Today's passage that we're going to look at comes from Matthew 10. Matthew 10 is Jesus' sermon on mission. There are five sermons Jesus preaches in the Gospel of Matthew. The first one is his most famous, the Sermon on the Mount. But this next one is all of Matthew 10, and it's called the Sermon on Mission. And here he sends out his disciples, the 12, and he gives them these instructions now, if you're familiar with the Bible, in Luke, uh, the Gospel of Luke, there is another account, a different account of another experiment Jesus does where he sends out 72 disciples. These are like little, these little training things he does before the Great Commission that we read about after his resurrection. So that's a little bit of context. But here, we see that Jesus isn't just concerned with 
uh, being, us being a people who live in light of his kingdom that he's bringing on earth, he's actually zealously and passionately invested in forming a people who are sent out to bring his kingdom to everyone. So what we're going to do is we're going to read the very first verse from uh, chapter 10, and then we're going to read verses 5 through 8. This is what it says. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These 12 disciples, verse 5, sent, uh, Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or in any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need to hear from you today. May we hear these words anew. And may we recognize that you are the God who sends his people out into this world. And so, Lord, I ask that you would help us to focus our attention on you and that any other distractions or any other things going on in our life, that for this moment we would hear from you so that we would respond to your call and I pray this in your strong and mighty name. Amen. The big idea this morning is that disciples of Jesus are sent out on mission. Jesus creates a people sent out on mission. Jesus forms a people sent out on mission. If you're a disciple of Jesus, he will send you out on mission. That's what he does with his disciples. If you're a disciple of Jesus, he will send you out on mission. Disciples of Jesus are these sent ones. And his mission is to bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That's what he announces as his good news. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Turn around or repent and lean on this. The kingdom of heaven isn't something that time is just marching towards as if it's at the end. As this one guy I read this week puts it, through Jesus, the kingdom of heaven has invaded and permeated our earthly historical existence and is in the process of transforming it. The kingdom of heaven is in the process of transforming world here on earth. And in the kingdom of heaven, humanity is reconciled to God, to one another and to creation. The kingdom of heaven, in it, God is restoring his creation through his son, Jesus Christ. And we see that through his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Now, there's two things that uh, uh, we need to understand about what Jesus is doing here in Matthew 10. Because we're going to spend the next few weeks in it, and we just need to have this understanding. One, Michael Green, uh, he is a New Testament scholar, and he argues that Jesus' sermon on mission is both, is two things. It's this historical mission of the twelve, and it's the continuing mission of the church. There's these two layers we've got to be aware of. One, being the first and specific one to these disciples. Don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritans. And second, it's to the church, capital C, continuing this mission, which would be us, go and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them all that I have commanded you. And so what Jesus says to his disciples in their specific context, he's saying to us in our different historical context, 
meaning there's a little more work we'll have to do to contextualize it, but there is a message that Jesus has for us who identify as his followers. The second thing we need to understand is that compassion for the lost and the hurting is what moves Jesus to send out his disciples. Compassion for the lost and the hurting is what moves Jesus to send out his disciples. Two weeks ago, before, when we, uh, before we went up to Anvil, we talked about how compassion motivates Jesus' mission. And those, that passage that we looked at, it was in Matthew 9, the very end of it. That's right before what we've just read this morning. And this is what it says in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 and 36. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus sees pain. He sees our pain. He sees people hurtless and helpless and harassed. And he is moved to compassion deep within his being. And it leads him to act on our behalf. And so what does he do? He calls on his disciples to stop being passive, consumers of the work that he is doing, and actually join him in this mission. Stop being a comfortable spectator and actually go out. And he does this by saying, look, the harvest is plentiful. He says this in verse 37. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The harvest is this metaphor for people who are looking for a shepherd who is full of compassion. And seeing this, he says, and ask the Lord of harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest. But here's the very thing. If you pay attention to this context then, the first answer to this prayer of asking the Father or God to send workers into the harvest is these 12. See the pain in the world. Respond by asking God to send workers into this harvest. And Jesus is like, yeah, and you're actually going to be part of the answer. You're going to be part of that answer to prayer. Do you see that flow? He sees the lost and hurting. He's moved with compassion. Jesus says the harvest is ripe, but there aren't enough workers for it. And then he commands his disciples to pray, asking God, the Lord of the harvest, to send more workers. Then Jesus sends his disciples out as workers into the harvest, giving them authority to proclaim the ki- kingdom, to heal and to teach. And the same applies for you and I, his church. We are to see the pain and suffering in our world and respond with compassion, not indifference. We are to go before God, asking him to send workers into the harvest. And then we are actually to respond by saying, and send me. Send me. And that's what Jesus does. He sends us out. Why? Why would he send us out into that place where there's pain? Some of us don't really like pain. No one really does like pain. Because that's where Jesus is. This was, I, I was made aware of this by Daryl Johnson. Jesus is in that place. He has come to enter into that pain. We shouldn't hide from the pain in our world. He sees the pain and he enters into it. And that's what the gospel uh, proclaims. Daryl Johnson will know in Jesus, in Jesus of Nazareth, the living God becomes one of us and voluntarily lays himself open to us, allowing himself to be intimately affected by our brokenness, our need, and our sin. Jesus has entered into the pain of our world, and he wants his disciples to enter in as well. 
Jesus seizes the hurt and helpless uh, humanity, and he sees that a harvest is ready. And so as disciples of Jesus, we must see ourselves as a people sent out by Jesus into this harvest. And what I find fascinating here is the disciples don't immediately recognize that there is this harvest that is ready. But Jesus looks out and makes that declaration. He's the expert. He makes the determination, not us. He sees our world and says there are so many people who are ready. Ask the Lord of Harvest to send workers and also go. You and I are prone to living and believing that our city, our neighborhood, our family members, our friends, they are not interested, they're not hurting, and they're not ready. And so I find in myself making this decision before I even go to talk to someone. I might feel a prompting to invite someone. And I'm like, oh, no, they're not interested. No, that, that, that'll just kill the conversation. No, that, that'll just alienate. Like, all the different things in my head. I'm the one making a determination. I don't even let that person have an opportunity to respond. And so I say nothing. But if you're a disciple of Jesus, you don't get that right. I'm not saying don't be wise. Jesus is going to say later on in this very sermon to be as wise as serpent, as gentle as doves. I'm not saying not, not to be gracious, but I'm saying I don't get to be the one who determines whether someone else is ready or not. And you don't either. We don't know. But what Jesus is also saying is, that, look, we haven't sown. We are not the sowers. Someone else has already gone ahead. We are to go out into the harvest that's already ready. There's so much work, there's just not enough workers. Ask the Lord of harvest to send out workers. And then Jesus is like, and I'm going to send you to be part of that harvest. Go out. We are called by Jesus to join him in going out into the harvest. This is a work that began before us and will continue after us. But we're a part of it for a moment. And he sends us out. We are needed for this harvest. And so what does that look like? What does Jesus send his disciples out to do? He sends them out to do what he does. Matthew 9, verse 35, summarizes what Jesus does. He goes out preaching, teaching, and healing. What does he preach? He preaches that the, the time is fulfilled, that the kingdom of heaven has come near. So turn around and put your trust in me, in this good news, that through Jesus, heaven is invading earth now. What is he teaching He's teaching that the, what the kingdom of heaven is like, what happens when people come into contact with him. He says that the poor in spirit are blessed, that mourners are comforted, that the pure in heart see God, that the, those who hunger and thirst to be rightly related to others, to God, are actually satisfied, that enemies are loved and prayed for, that reconciliation happens. He teaches what the kingdom of God is like and who the king of heaven is what he's like. But he also goes out healing. Why? why? Why is he doing that? Why is that a part of this ministry work that Jesus does? It's because as the kingdom comes close through him, he reveals that in the kingdom, people are made whole. That part of what the kingdom of heaven coming on earth is about is actually making human beings whole, restoring them 
to properly and fully reflecting God's image. Loving others, loving God. But now, we see this is what Jesus does. Jesus is actually going to send us out. And that's what we read in our passage at first. He calls out his 12 disciples to go, gives them authority to drive out impure spirits, to heal every disease and sickness. And then he says in verse 7 of chapter 10, as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you've received and freely you give. You and I are to go out into this harvest proclaiming that God's kingdom has actually come near to us in Jesus. That it's happening. Not that it will just happen, but in him it's already happening and that it's happening in our lives. Teaching what it looks like, not simply through our words, but through our lives. Bringing healing that makes people whole through him. And this is an incredibly high calling that Jesus gives to his disciples. But that's why making disciples matters. Because it's only when people become disciples of Jesus that we begin to experience this wholeness that he came to bring. And so one of the questions that we inevitably have for our lives is, where does he send us? Because he doesn't send us all to Mexico. And then send us to another country. Well, in this book, Kingdom Values, John Tyson and Susie Silk highlight three places. And if those of you who have taken the Following Jesus Today course, you'll, you'll remember these three places. Jesus sends us to people. Jesus sends us to places. And he sends us to positions. Jesus sends us to people. God often sends us to a particular group or group of uh, 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 particular people. For example, Paul is sent to the Greek-speaking world. We can read about that in Acts 9. Philip was sent to an Ethiopian eunuch and then to the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. Peter is sent to the household of Cornelius in Acts 10. Lindsay, my wife, was the first in her immediate family to become a follower of Jesus. And once she did, God sent her into her family. And one of the first people to receive it was her sister. And so I'm really glad Lindsay said yes to Jesus' work in her life. But he sends us to people. All throughout history, we see God sent men and women to specific groups of people, sometimes from their own culture, sometimes from another. But it often spreads through families, through com small communities. He also sends us to places. In Acts 1, Jesus promises that his disciples will be witnesses of him in Jerusalem, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. There's like these expanding circles that Jesus is saying, you're going to be my witness of. And the book of Acts records how many places the apostles and other disciples go to. And so, according to church tradition, Andrew made it to places uh, as far north as the Black Sea. Thomas made it past Syria and into I uh, India. Philip went to South, uh, North Africa. Peter and James were sent to their own Jewish people living in Jerusalem. Paul went to all these different cities and Gentile-speaking places throughout the Roma, Roman Empire, several times as a prisoner. These cities were busy, culturally and spiritually diverse, and in many ways had lots of similarities to our city. But third, Jesus also sends us to positions. And Scripture gives us numerous examples of this, where someone is sent to a specific position or industry to influence there. Paul's a tent maker. He shared the gospel in prison. He even spoke before kings, declaring who God is and what he had done through Jesus. Some disciples were successful in business and actually in the early church used their home to be a place where the church would gather. 
Other disciples were given positions of authority in government. And a classic example of this is William Wilberforce, who was sent into British Parliament so that he and others could overturn the British slave trade and bring God's freedom to many. All of God's disciples, all of Jesus' disciples are sent to someone, to some place. And this isn't something where Jesus says, only a select few will be sent out. All of us are sent. We're just sent into different places. Places that more often than not, only you get access to. People that only you get access to. And so one of the questions we need to be asking ourselves is, what people or place or position is Jesus sending you out to right now? Or maybe better phrase, where has he already sent you? Jerry Ballard, some of you will recognize that name. He was one of the first elders at Cascades way back in 1955. When he shares the story of what God did here, he talked about how he actually had this heart to be a missionary to China. And that's what he was preparing for. But the Lord actually directed him to come here to Cascades to be part of what he was doing here in Vancouver. My great-grandparents, both of them wanted to be missionaries. But Jesus said, no, I'm actually sending you into your own country, to your own people. And he had them do his work in Honduras. There's something about us that for some reason we often think that his work can only consist elsewhere and not actually in our lives, in the people that he has put us around. And yet, in the story of Cascades, in my personal story, that's what the Lord has just shown. Wherever I place you, I, I want you to know you're on mission there, to make me known there, to bring my healing there. You know, after that first mission to Mexico, I felt this calling to serve him, and um, I kind of assumed it would be elsewhere. In fact, I studied anthropology and international studies in preparation and anticipation of, oh, he's probably going to send me out somewhere else. So I want to have an understanding of how cultures work what, what, uh, and, and have a way of being able to approach that. But I also want to be able to understand like different uh, international systems like politics, economics, and how that impacts the country. Oh, this seems like pretty good prep for me. So I'll go into these two areas. I even took a semester off in 2010 to try to pray and to seek God's direction for my life. And in that year, I served on a mission to the Philippines. I went to Israel and I learned a ton there. I spent time uh, actually like leading my first mission to Mexico. I looked into different training programs, not just abroad, but locally for discipling young people. And all, through all of that time, I actually ended up discerning that God wanted me right where I was, in my local church making disciples of young people there, going to university. God wanted me to stay where I was in my city, at my church, at my school, and I felt peace with that. So you can be faithful right where you are as long as you see he has sent you. And so I felt at peace with where I was until 2017. I was working on my master's and working in a church in Coquitlam, and I received a call from Bob Gill, who some of you will know. And he asked me if I had any interest in coming to be pastor of Cascades. I love Vancouver. The Lord, I believe, brought me to Vancouver for a purpose that's beyond just like living in a beautiful city. 
I knew our city. I knew the statistics of our city. I knew the needs of our city for the gospel. I knew how religiously unaffiliated Vancouver was. But honestly, I did not want to come to Cascades. The Lord did, and he made it known to me. See, when Bob asked me this question, the Lord answered deep within me with a voice saying, yes, 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 yes. But that was not my voice. I didn't say yes to Bob that day. I said I'd pray about it for a week at his suggestion. And I didn't want to go because I was afraid. I didn't want to say yes to Jesus because I was afraid. I didn't think I was the right person for the job. I believed I didn't have enough experience leading, preaching, teaching. Some of you would say, yeah, you're, you're right about that one. I didn't have a charismatic personality to draw people. 100% true. I didn't have the strategic mind to know how to lead us into what the next season of ministry would be at Cascades. I was afraid I would upset people. What if the Lord directs me in one way and others don't like it? What if I obey and it creates conflict? Fears tie us down and stop us from stepping into God's mission. They bind us up. So we hear it, but we don't do anything about it. We hear it, and then we don't actually go out. We hear it, and we don't actually invite. We don't share. Fears have a way of hindering us from doing what Jesus wants. Fears stop us from being the vessels of God, heralds of Jesus, and bringers of his healing love and joy. One of the greatest reasons Christians don't take his call to go out on mission seriously is because we are afraid of what we cannot control, of how someone will respond, how people will look at us, what we will say because we feel like we're not good with words, we're not patient enough. We focus so much on what we are not, what we don't know and what we cannot control. We look at the pains and needs of our world, and then we look at ourselves and what we are not, and we say, I can't do anything about that. I don't, I don't know how, where I would start. What we do in that moment without realizing is we actually stop looking at Jesus. If we don't consider what he's actually, if we don't actually say to him, Lord, send me, and mean that, we don't go out. He is the expert. He sees the seen and the unseen, and he says there is a harvest and it is ripe. He gives us authority. He says, go proclaiming, teaching, healing. You know, June the 1st, like the day right before we went out to camp, was five years for me here at Cascades. That's a personal milestone. Five years here at Cascades. I am so glad I said yes, even though it was a hesitant, nervous, cautious yes. It was a yes. And you've been a gracious people to me. You've seen me make mistakes and graciously correct me. You've encouraged me. You've prayed for me. And together, we've seen needs in, in, in our own lives, in the lives of our neighborhood, in our city. We have brought them to the Lord of Harvest, and he has answered us. So that one of the very first streets that we started praying on 
bringing the people of that street to the Lord of Harvest became one of the very streets where a family came and started attending our church. He is the Lord of Harvest. Are we actually saying, yes, send me, I will go? Are we believing that he actually said, what he says, that it is ripe for harvest? I'm not the expert, but I have seen him move as I've seen this pain and come to him in prayer, as we've seen that together and prayed. And we are not the same community because of it. We're not the same people because of it. Jesus has led people to come and make cascades home, and he's led others to himself to have encounters with him, to experience his healing power, his peace, his forgiveness, his reconciliation. We're not the same community, and I am not the same person since coming here. And it's because of him. And our city will not be the same unless we are faithful to his command to go. Sorry, our city will not change if we are not faithful to his commands to go out. Our city can't be changed unless we do as he tells us. And it just starts with a simple, yes, I will go where you want me to go. I'm willing to be that one, to take you at your word. And then it follows with a simple, Lord, send workers here. I see the needs. There's so many needs, there's not enough workers. Would you send workers? I'm willing to go. I'm willing to do what you want me to do. So often we feel like we have to know it all, have it figured out, and have every single step figured out before we go out and do it. And that is not what he calls us to do. But because we do that, we miss out on experiencing his work in our lives and being fueled and energized, being like, I prayed and look what he did. He actually answered that. And then using that very story as the thing that you can share with others because you lived it. It's not someone else's story. It's your story. But it's like we miss out on stepping into it. And so then we're wondering, man, how come God doesn't like, why doesn't it feel like he's at work in my life? Our fears bind us. And he has come to set us free. Wherever the spirit of God is, there is freedom. And so here's what I'm asking you to do as individuals and then as a church community. I am asking you to say yes to Jesus' mission with me. To say yes. To say yes to him daily. Yes, Jesus, I will go where you want me to go. You know, this is super simple for me this week. Once I got it wrong, once I got it twice. Went for pizza, I was hungry, it was a late lunch. There was a gentleman I met, and I just felt the Lord like prompt me to just talk about my life and, and talk about him. I didn't do it, I was nervous. I just felt like, oh man, that was a missed opportunity. But I took, took my son Evan to Strong Short, and, I, I, and I, there was a dad there that I've talked with like regularly about a bunch of different things, and I just felt prompted like, you should just invite him. I'm like, oh no, that's kind of awkward. So we said bye. It's the last time I'll be at Strong Start for the season. And so I said bye to him or whatever, and I'm like, oh, shoot, I didn't do it again. And then I was like, oh, man, maybe there's a way I can just run into him into the parking lot. So I just went and I invited him, and you know what? He wasn't interested. <laughs> but sometimes I think 
we try to make that decision for them. We let our fear stop us from just a simple, small invitation. I also invited him to come and play basketball with me. And he was game for that. But we'll just say, oh, no, that's so awkward. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be. And then you insert whatever story you have in your mind. When what we're not doing is living in the story of God and what is possible through the living God made known in Jesus who sends you and I out. So I'm asking you to say yes to his mission because it's not just for one person. It's not just for 12. It's not just for the extra dedicated, the ones who know the most. It is for all of us, and he can use us exactly where we're at. But we need to say yes. So say yes to him. Secondly, I am asking you to focus your eyes on him and his words. To set your ears on his words more than you do on what you think. He's given us his words. May we actually give more attention and more weight to what he has said than what is just we think. To focus your attention on who he is, what he says about our world, what he says about who you are, that you are one of his apprentices, that you are a citizen of the kingdom of God, that you're an ambassador of him sent out, that you are a worker sent out into a harvest that is ripe for picking. And I'm asking you to step out in faith with a simple prayer this week. And you can start praying today. Lord, what aspects of your character have you revealed in my story? Someone asked me this this week, and I felt like one of them is patience, that the Lord is very, 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 very patient with me. Far more patient than I am with myself. That he is provider. He just provides in beautiful ways, unexpected ways. Many times I'm not even fully seeing it. I'm not believing him for it, but he does. What is it for you? What parts of his character are revealed in your story? That's not that hard to do. You don't have to know a lot. You just have to have enough time to reflect for a moment. Who have you been in my life? Lord, would you have mercy with whoever is there right now? This third part, the second question is, who is someone God might be asking you to share your story with? Who is someone God might be asking you to share your story with? It might be just like a tiny little part. It doesn't have to be like a thing you figure out. But it's asking him, is there someone? Asking him, ask him this today. And then go and trust him for this week that he'll make a way. We are going to enter into communion.